Hey, Fellowship Rogers, on February 27th, we will experience some change at our church. Not only are we launching our new Bentonville campus, but we will be moving to two service times at Fellowship Rogers. Our first service will be at 9 a.m. and the other at 10.30 a.m. This will bring us into alignment with Fayetteville and Bentonville campuses as all three will meet simultaneously at the 9 and 10.30 hours. We want to thank our 8 o'clock attenders for making room for many years for our church to grow and welcome new guests. And now these new service times bring us an opportunity to serve like never before. With our Bentonville volunteers moving north, it's time for Fellowship Rogers to step up and meet the needs in our worship ministry, hospitality ministry, and children's ministry. Fellowship Rogers, mark the date, February 27th, 9 a.m. and 10.30. We'll see you there. Good morning, Fellowship. Would you stand with us? Let's sing of God's faithfulness together. We can testify that all my life he's been faithful.
Well, good morning, fellowship. It's great. Hey, that's a pretty strong response, and it's great to see you here on a snowy Sunday morning. Uh, hey, if you're new with us, we're glad that you're, you're visiting. And even on a day like today, we'd, still, we'd love to meet you. And uh, I'll be in the, in the booth in the back, and I'd love to if you'd stop by and say hello. You see, being a part of fellowship means worshiping together. It means being a part of a community group. It also means serving together. And so I can tell you more about serving together here in just a minute for all of us, uh, but we'd love to help you get plugged in here at our church. And then uh, I, I made a promise that I'd mentioned that tonight we have at 6, 6 p.m. for our young professionals, we have a, a, a gathering for prayer and, and fun, and so uh, that'll be in the Lodge building. And so if you're one of our young professionals or no one, uh, please uh, come back this evening at 6. All right, so let's talk about serving so uh, we're opening a new Bentonville campus coming up on February 27th, so that's a yay deal. All right, so how many people are planning to go to the Fellowship Bentonville when that opens? All right, all right, that's a pretty good crowd. How many people plan to stay here and worship in Rogers? Yeah, Springdale Rogers people, that's a good crowd too, that's a good deal. Hey, so, so on February 27th, that'll be a launch for Bentonville and kind of a relaunch here as we go to 9 and 10.30 in Rogers. But guess what? We're gonna need a ton of new people serving. So maybe some of you had, would say, well, we've, been, we've served before, but we're just, we've been taking a break for a while or a few years, and so we need you. So come on back in and, and help us. And maybe you're new to fellowship over the last couple of years or something, and you say, we have never gotten plugged in and serving, and we need you too. So uh, we have all kinds of ways to, uh, to serve we have a way for you to sign up, and you can see this form up behind me. We have it on our website, and so you can go to fellowshipnwa.org serve, or we've got a scan code, a QR code that you can, you can scan, and so uh, just come to the back booth. We also have a paper form. If you're old school like me, this is your ticket. So just come back and, and get a, a paper form, and we, we'll get you plugged in. So you ask, well, what kinds of things do you need people to do? We have things for folks who want to be up front and visible and for those who are more behind the scenes. And so some of our biggest needs would include uh, greeters, ushers, and if you're really tough and want to serve outside in February for Bentonville, we need parking lot people. And if you're even tougher we need people for early childhood, working with young kids. And so we, we, need to, we, need, we have a ton of other ways that you can serve and help out. And so we'd love to help you uh, come and help us by signing up to do that. Well, we have a baptism today. And so Matt, take it away. Thanks so much, Bart. Good morning, fellowship. It is good to see you guys out here. And today we have Miss Abriana Perkins, and she was so excited to get baptized. Actually, um, Wendy was communicating with the family yesterday and was like, hey, do you guys want to postpone? It looks like we're not sure about the roads and everything. And Abriana said, no, I'm going to be baptized tomorrow. And so we are so excited to get to baptize her today. Abriana, is it your story that you love Jesus and you want to follow him all the days of your life? Yes. Awesome. Well, I am so excited to baptize you. You ready? All right. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, and raised to walk in a new life. Would you stand with us once again? And this morning we have the opportunity to declare that Jesus is worthy of every song we could ever sing. Lift your voice. 
worthy of every song we could ever sing. You're worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Let's sing his name together, Jesus. In Jesus, the name above every other name. In Jesus, the only one who could ever say. You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. We sing holy, holy. There is no there is none beside you open up my eyes in wonder show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me the song is a prayer of devotion and adoration Let's sing these words of faith. Let's mean them. He's worthy. You're worthy of every song we could ever sing. You're worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. the only one who could ever see so worthy worthy of every breath we could ever we live for you
be seated. And praise the Lord, His mercies more.
You search and know the depths of our souls. Our hearts are formed more like you, Jesus, as your love pours over us. Oh, Lord, your grace flows over our failures. You search depths of our souls and our hearts are formed more like you Jesus as your love pours over us oh Lord your love pours over part of the Spectra Art Ministry at Fellowship. Through our art, we get to share the gospel. We get to take a gift that was given to us from the Lord and share that with other people. People showing their love for the Lord and their passion for Christ through their art is an incredibly beautiful thing. And I love being a part of that ministry. I was fortunate enough to be able to paint a piece for the Jonah series. The piece that I painted depicts Jonah sinking to the depths. And I think every one of us can relate sinking to the depths of our difficulties, of our struggles, but especially in moments where God calls us to something very difficult and very hard. How many of us have ran when the Lord has said, I need you to step up and I need you to do this. Going to the depths when we're running from the Lord and not knowing or feeling like he's going to be there can be very hard. But we know from scripture that he promises to always be there. As Jonah sank further into the sea, the Lord was still with Jonah the whole time. I truly hope that when a viewer sees this piece, that they realize that going to the depths of any situation they know that the Lord is still with them. He still has work for them to do. There is still room for that person to serve. And there is still some way that the Lord can use them to further his kingdom and to bring the gospel to those that have not yet heard. Well, there's a saying in the Ozarks, it's just another beautiful day in the Ozarks, isn't it? But there's a saying that if you don't like the weather, just stick around because tomorrow it'll be different, right? For those of you tuning in online, we've got a beautiful day in the Ozarks and we wish you were here with us, but we're glad you're tuning in. We will be celebrating communion, so you might want to get the elements ready later for later in the service if you're at home. As Casey said so well, and she illustrated so beautifully with her painting, we are in the middle of a study as a church in the book of Jonah. Today we're in chapter 3. Last week, uh, Dr. Yarborough took us through chapter 2 of Jonah. Matter of fact, he's written a commentary, a devotional commentary that we had for sale out in the foyer. We were out of books, I think, but you can pick it up online. It's a great read. And some people might say this. Some people might say it'd be really hard to follow not only a seminary professor uh, who happened to used to be my professor and, and a president of a seminary, but he's also written a book on the book we're studying. Some people would say it'd be hard, wouldn't it? Well, I'm just gonna say this, that I'll, I'll be spending a little bit of time kind of mopping up after him, cleaning up some things he said this morning, but we're gonna be all right. No, I'm just kidding. We love Dr. Yarborough. He is a friend of the local church. He's a partner with us and we enjoy him so much, and it was great to have him here with us last week. I've got a question for you. Of all the miracles in the book of Jonah, what's the one, when you think of them, first comes to your mind? Yeah, the fish, the big fish swallows the person. It's incredible, isn't it? It's, it's, it's hard to believe. Many people don't accept it. 
Well, uh, let me propose this for you this morning, that this morning in our study of chapter 3, I believe there is a more powerful miracle in chapter 3 of Jonah than even there was in chapter 1 of the fish swallowing the person. I believe it's more impactful, quite possibly the most amazing miracle in the book, and it's powerful, and you're going to have to stay tuned if you're going to find out what it is. If Jonah, to break the book of Jonah down, it breaks down real nicely in two parts, the first two chapters and chapters three and four. It breaks down really nicely. But what's really interesting, and the writer does such incredibly creative narrative things, the, the, the second two chapters, so chapters three and four, they mirror the first two chapters. And so as we study it this morning, you can kind of think through it that way. In the first two chapters, just by way of review, first, God comes to Jonah, doesn't he? And he, he tells him to go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah say? Thanks, but no thanks. And instead of turning right and going to Nineveh, he turns left and he goes to Joppa. He buys a ticket for the farthest place he can go away from there. He responds to God, but not in a very positive way. And then he speaks with the unbelievers. He ends up on a boat. He speaks with them. This big storm comes up. They're trying to figure out the cause of the storm, and he ends up telling them that, that I'm the cause of the storm, that my God is the God of the land and the sea, and, and I am the cause of the storm. And he eventually convinces the sailors to throw him overboard, and they begin to respect and revere Jonah's God, and so they respond that way. Disaster's averted, the, the sea calms, and Jonah ends up in the belly of a large fish. Apparently, we can't say whale anymore. I'm not sure why. And it's 2022, apparently we don't really know whether it was a whale or not. It could have been a bluegill. No. But it's a large fish. So, so Jonah ends up in the belly of a large fish. He has this prayer time with God where he writes this psalm or this song. It's incredible. He's actually, he's actually regurgitating the, the, the word of God that he knows into a psalm or a song to the Lord in the belly of a fish. And God responds to Jonah by spitting him up onto, having the fish spit him up onto dry land, which we'll talk more about that in just a moment. At the end of last summer, I had what I call an MPM, a momentous parenting moment. Okay, this was incredible. So I had this, this time, my son spent the summer in, in Destin, Florida, where he worked a full-time job. He did this uh, student mobilization, the college ministry. They do this incredible thing in, 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 during the summer times where they take students, and they teach them how to study the Bible, and they teach them how to do ministry, and they work full-time. It's incredible. And he's about to come back from this, and so I, I shoot him a text like a good dad does and say, hey, be careful driving back, watch your speed, don't look at your map too much, things like that. And then I call him that morning. As he's heading out, I'm saying, and I actually had looked at, you know, the, where you can watch your people do their thing. They're moving on, find my iPhone. And so I'm watching him and he's headed in the wrong direction. And I'm like, that's not good. And so I call him up and say, hey, what's going on? Nothing, just headed home. Oh, are you? And so I said, well, uh, are you checking your map? And he said, no, I'm just following some other guys. And I said, well, I think you're headed in the wrong direction. Ah, we're fine. We're doing the right thing. Don't worry about us. Okay, see you. And so a little while later, he sends me this text. You were right. I mean, I'm telling you, this is 20 years in the making. This is, this is something you read in a parenting book. This is what, you're, you're, this is what it's all about. Matter of fact, I'm gonna frame this. I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna print it, I'm gonna frame it, put it right between my college degree and my seminary degree, and you were right. 20 years. Hallmark movie moment. But, you know, if you're a parent, you understand this. You have your children, and, and it's either daily, maybe it's monthly, maybe it's, it's weekly, but you have this moment where you tell, okay, apologize to your sister. I'm sorry. You see, there's outward obedience, but there's no inward heart change, is there? And as a parent, you can't force the heart. You can't. And it, it's not pretty with a child, but you know what's really not pretty? Is when it's happening with an adult who's a prophet of God. And here's what we're gonna see this morning. Our big idea, a heart lacking in repentance leads to a life of half-hearted obedience. And if this doesn't challenge you, you need to do a heart check. 
that this morning's passage, it's for us, just like it's for God's people. A heart lacking repentance leads to a life of half-hearted obedience. What we mean by repentance is this, is there has to be a turn, a change of heart or attitude towards something. In this case, it would be God. There has to be a, a turn in your heart or your attitude towards the Lord. There has to be a humility. I can't, but God can. It might seem to the casual reader that at the end of chapter two of Jonah that God and Jonah are all good. But as Dr. Yarbrough illustrated last week, it was anything but good. And he used this verse to illustrate it. Verse 10 of chapter two, it says, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, how many can think of a good use of the word or a positive use of the word vomited? Uh, it's hard, isn't it? He referred to Leviticus chapter 18 when the, the land would, would vomit out the disobedient. See, it doesn't seem like God is pleased with the position of Jonah's heart. Is it true? Can the can almighty, all-knowing God truly know the heart of Jonah? Yes. So here's the challenging thing. Can he know my heart? Or your heart? I think we all know the answer to that. Well, let's look together at chapter 3 and let's see how Jonah handles this second chance to obey. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. God is giving Jonah a second chance to go to Nineveh and proclaim. This, this actually sounds really familiar, doesn't it? If you compare the first two verses of chapter three with the first two verses of chapter one, they're almost identical. The first two verses of chapter one say this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So we know why he sent from that verse Two of chapter 1, because its wickedness has come up before me. And he doesn't repeat that in chapter 3. But the last time we remember, he didn't obey, did he? I think I've got a map for you. You may have seen this before, but he, he, he's, he's in Israel. He's, in, he's a Hebrew. Instead of turning right and going to Nineveh, he turns left, goes to Joppa, buys a ticket to the farthest place away. He tries to get away from the Lord. And it's very interesting <clears throat> The, uh, the, the English Standard Version does a really good job, and, and the writer of, the, of, of Jonah does a really good job, these different literary things. And here's one going on here, and ESV captures it best. In verse 2, God says, arise and go to Nineveh, but instead Jonah goes down to Joppa in verse 3. In verse 6, the captain of the ship says, arise and call out to your God. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And then we see in our passage today in verse 2, so Jonah arose, I'm sorry, God again says, arise and go to Nineveh, and we'll see in verse 3 in just a moment, so Jonah arose and goes to Nineveh. He's going to obey this time. And it may seem like we're being kind of hard on Jonah, but, but here's, there's a lot of reasons why he wouldn't want to go to Nineveh. Reason one, number one is he was probably afraid. You need to think about it this way. What if, what if, what if, we felt, or God called us to go preach the gospel in modern day Baghdad, Iraq. How do you think an American would be received there speaking the gospel? It'd be very scary, wouldn't it? That's what Nineveh's like. The Assyrians are like ISIS with the military power of the United States. And so for Jonah to go there, not only are they his enemy, but, but they, they do terrible things to their enemies and even their people. So Jonah's afraid. The next thing is he doesn't like them. He probably hates them. He probably has a prejudice against them. We'll see later on in the, the passage. And he's saying, why could God want me to go to those people? And then the third thing is there's probably a misunderstanding in Jonah's heart because he's probably heard that Nahum had prophesied that, that Nineveh was going to be destroyed. He's like, why would God have me go to a place that he's already said will be destroyed? And so in verse 3, we see him obey, maybe just outwardly, maybe reluctantly, maybe half-heartedly, but we're going to see him obey. Look at this. 
Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So Jonah obeys and goes to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a big city. Um, in verse 2, it says great city. In verse 3, it says very large city. And, and <clears throat> scholars think it could mean a number of things. It could mean that there's physical size. It's really big. But also, it could mean it's value to the Lord. And that's debated. And both are really good responses. Maybe both are true. I've got a drawing of what Nineveh might have looked like. It would have been a very fortified city. It probably had between 200 and 400,000 people. It had a wall that was 100 feet high, 50 feet wide. It was the military power of the day. And eventually, later on in history, it would become the capital of Assyria. It was, near, it was on the banks of the Tigris River. It would be near Mosul, modern-day Mosul, Iraq. But Jonah didn't want to go there, but he did end up obeying God. And it says it took three days to go through it. That could mean he was preaching three days through it. It could mean it took three days to go through it, but, but he was there. And he was preaching to the Ninevites. And here's what he was saying. Look at verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So he's preaching doom and gloom. His, his method was walking through the city and preaching. His message was 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It seems like obedience to me, doesn't it, you? But there's something missing in Jonah's message. Do you know what it is? See, oftentimes a prophet would give bad news and he would give good news. Not all the time, but most of the time. And here's what's missing in Jonah's passage. I think these verses are so instructive. Oh, let me say something first. So there's a word there in that, in, in, in that verse. The last word is the word overthrown. In verse 4, that is a powerful word. If they heard this word, they would think of it like a military conquering was coming, that they were going to be destroyed. It would, it would conjure up images of Sodom and Gomorrah that they would be wiped off the face of the earth. It would have been very powerful, both for the Hebrew and quite possibly for the Ninevite as well. But I think to understand what's going on here, and why Jonah's message is missing the good news, look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. And you got to remember, he's in the belly of the whale at this point. Okay, He's writing this, this prayer to God. And he says this, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, which that's powerful in and of itself. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. Now listen to this. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Is he saying that? No. He's saying destruction's coming. He doesn't say the second part. He tells God he's going to say it, but he never says it. And after he tells God he's going to say it, what happens in verse 10? The fish vomiting onto the bank. You see, I think God knew his heart. So I think we need to answer a question. Why did God send Jonah to the Ninevites? And I think it's instructive for us. The first reason, I think the, the, the predominant reason, is because he loves them. He's a missionary God. He's trying to show his people, the Hebrew people, that he loves the Assyrians no matter how evil they are. They are created in the image of God. And that is powerful. And for this reason, Jonah, who I think you could call the older brother, if you know the New Testament parable, should love them too. Second reason, God hates evil. Especially, especially when it's done to the orphan or the widow or the unborn or the elderly or the infirmed or the poor or the foreigner. Anyone who lacks standing, God hates evil to all people. And this place was especially evil, and they were treating people really poorly. And it shows us, shows the Christian, shows us the importance of compassion. 
It shows us the importance of the gospel. And I think there's something instructive here that, and this is just my opinion, but for the modern day evangelical, for some reason, we tend to gravitate either towards showing compassion or, or speaking truth. Some of us gravitate towards showing compassion. Man, we love to serve, we love to take care of people, but we might forget to speak the truth of the gospel, huh? That's hard. It might be offensive. And in some, we love to speak truth, don't we? We love to tell you what the truth is, but we forget to show compassion. Some call this compassion, they call it social justice. And where, don't, don't tune out, listen to me. Think about justice this way. Don't think about it being people getting what they deserve because they've done stuff. Think about it this way. How does God see justice? Justice might be that God, we should see people how God sees them. God sees them as, as imagers of him, all people, created in the image of God. And therefore, they, they deserve dignity and care. And, and what the, the, the believer, especially us today, we need to marry speaking the truth and showing compassion. Now, not in every moment, but as a well-rounded believer, we need to be able to speak the truth at the proper time. And if anybody, anything in your life offends people, it should be because you are telling them the truth of Jesus. But you're also serving. And there's some people that do this in this church really well. I love to follow their example. They, they serve, and they serve, and they love, and they serve, and then they speak truth. It's really powerful. And sometimes you'll be called just to serve. And sometimes you'll be called just to speak the truth. And we see here Jonah is speaking truth, at least half of it. Let's see how the Ninevites respond. Look at verse 6. The Ninevites believed God. There it is. There's the miracle. The Ninevites believed God. Now think about this. What if, what, if, what if a God called some, say, a Korean person to go minister in the streets of, of Baghdad and they, they share the gospel and, and revival breaks out and everyone stops their evil ways and the guns, are, the guns are burned and revival happens in Baghdad? That's what's happening here. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is absolutely incredible. Now, now listen again. The people's response, they believed God. They proclaimed a fast so they didn't eat or drink. They put on sackcloth, which sackcloth would be like, the coarsest, roughest material you can imagine. The poorest of society would wear it. I always imagine a potato sack, wearing a potato sack, something like that. Can you imagine the, the sackcloth salesman? He's like selling sackcloth, and all of a sudden one day everybody's buying it. He's like, what in the world's going on? It'd be like the modern-day mask salesman. You know, you know there was some guy in 2019 that bought a surgical mask company, just thinking, oh, yeah, I'll buy this company. It'll do all right, and his sales went crazy. That's what's happening here. Everybody's buying sackcloth. Now look at the king's response. He rose from his throne. That's big. Something important must be going on. He took off his royal robes, even bigger. What would cause a king to take off his royal robes? He covered himself with sackcloth. The king of this area takes off his royal robes. He puts on sackcloth, puts on the potato sack, and he sat down in the dust. Now I don't imagine there's a lot of dust in the palace. He probably had to leave the palace and to go outside and he sits down in the dust. But he's not done yet. Look at, look at verse seven. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. You see, the king not only believed it, he required it. They're wiping out all evil. Now, there's some debate among scholars about the level of repentance. A lot of scholars, if you read about this, they'll say, well, they didn't really repent. They just kind of changed their behavior. 
There's no record of, of long-term life change. You know, societies don't typically record Christian stuff anyway, so who knows? But, but, I, but I would almost argue with the, the, the commentaries, though, and just say, when was the last time you took days off from work because of something in your life that you were just grieved over. You took days off from work. You changed your attire. You laid on the ground and you pleaded with the Lord to change your heart. You were so broken up about your sin that you, you didn't see people. You changed your schedule. That's what's happened here. And whether it was just a, a service level change that they were so scared God was gonna bring judgment that maybe they changed their behavior Whatever it was, or maybe it was a deeper heart change, something happened. So how significant was their change? Well, it was significant enough that God should be pleased. The people should be pleased. Look at God's response in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, and you notice that word turn there, from their evil ways, that word evil is ra, it's a powerful word. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. See, God stopped. He changed his mind because they changed their ways. So this should be the end of the story, right? Jonah should be over in three chapters. You know, God's happy. The Ninevites are happy. Jonah's happy. And everyone lives happily ever after. And the chapter stops right there. The problem is the thought doesn't stop. It actually goes on into chapter 4. And so we've got to look at verse 1 in chapter 4. It says this, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. With all the repentance, all the life change, all the change in behavior, something seemed wrong to Jonah. And there's an interesting thing going on here. The Ninevites move from what God determines is calls evil into a more right, obedient standing. And Jonah moves from this, this what's termed right or more obedient standing into what might be considered evil. Those words wrong and angry are actually the same, come from the same root word family as what God called the Ninevites when he called them evil. So it's almost like there's a switching going on. It's not that Jonah's losing his salvation. It's just what he's done, his attitude, his heart is wrong. Dr. Yarbrough says it this way. Reluctant obedience is a dangerous response. Spiritually going through the motions is risky business. It's potentially risky for the recipients of the insincere reactions, but it's especially, it is risky to the, to the heart of the one who stands in that compromised state. If you're convicted right now, you should be. This is challenging stuff. I think it hits right at the heart of our American Christianity, doesn't it? We're going to give you a time later in the service before we take communion just to have some time alone with the Lord and ask him some penetrating questions. I spent some time this morning in Luke chapter 15. If you're not familiar with it, it in Luke chapter 15 is the story of the prodigal son. It's one of the most well-known uh, parables in the New Testament, and, and it's powerful. It, it's really powerful. But it's about a dad who has two sons, and the, the younger son asks his dad, says, hey, I want, I want all my inheritance. And the dad gives it to him, and he goes off and he blows it. He ends up worse off than he'd ever been. He didn't have anything to eat. And he thinks in his mind, I'll come back, and I'll, uh, I'll just be a servant of my father. And as the younger son comes back, the dad sees him in the distance and he gets so excited, he runs up and he hugs him. He gives him the reception the younger son would never think he would give him. He, he kills the fattened calf. He, he has this incredible party. And, and what happens is the older son comes back as the party's going on. And he hears the music and he asks the servant, hey, what's going on? Your brother's come home. He's come home. Your dad's killed the fattened calf. And you know what the brother does? He's angry. He said, I never get that treatment. It's not fair. 
But you see, the brother at that point does not have the same heart that the father has. And I think the book of Jonah is an Old Testament example of the prodigals, of the parable of the prodigal son. And you've got to figure out, okay, which, which, which child am I? You see, God's heart is for all people. He's a missionary God. And what his, what his children have to realize is a heart lacking in repentance, it will lead you down a road towards a life of half-hearted obedience. And church, may we never, ever be that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your word, even when it's as convicting as it is today. Lord, we thank you for Jonah. Lord, we thank you for his life. Lord, we thank you for this word. And I pray that, Lord, you would convict us this morning. You would challenge us. You would encourage us. You would teach us what we need to learn. In this time of response, that, Lord, you would, you would move in a wonderful way in our hearts and our minds. You would prepare our hearts to confess to you our wrongs and then come to your table in repentance. I will kneel in the dust at the foot of the cross with mercy. It is gone, it is past, your blood has hidden me. Mercy, mercy, as endless as the sea, I'll sing your
as a parent of teenage drivers, you're always in this state of kind of worry. And when they leave home, you start saying things, and parents, you know this, you start saying all the things they don't want you to say and they don't listen to. And so with my kids at home, I, I just start saying funny things and they walk out the door trying to hope they'd be safe. And, I'll, I'll, and one of the things I say is, hey, hey right turns only. And I say it to them. I want them to ask me about it someday. They haven't yet, but I want. But I say right turns only because if you always make right turns, that's this, for, of course, the safer turn. But it's all you always end up back home. And you see, the, the danger of living a life lacking in repentance is that you're going to occasionally, maybe often, make the left turn, and you're going to end up in Joppa and not Nineveh, like God told you. It's a dangerous way to live. And if we go back to our passage, actually last week's passage, and, and you go back to, to Jonah's prayer at verses eight and nine, he says something really interesting. Not only does he say that, that if, you, uh, if you focus on idols, that you'll, um, you'll not be focused on God, but he also, and he also says that he's gonna preach salvation, but in the middle of that verse, that passage, He says, I will sacrifice to you, Lord. You see, the Old Testament sacrifice, it was was an outward expression of what was going on in your heart. And as far as we know, Jonah never did it. It's not recorded. And we need to make sure we sacrifice. We need to make sure we confess. And how we do that is we come to the table and we remember. 
I want to give you just a moment, just between you and God, and you're going to bow your heads right there in your seat, and I want you to ask him these questions. First of all, ask him the question, Lord, is there anything in my life I need to confess to you and repent from? And as he brings it to mind, just confess it. Exhale confession and inhale forgiveness. Second question. Lord, is there any area of my life that's lacking your leadership where I'm I'm not following your leadership? Is there a place you're supposed to serve, whether in the church or outside the church? Is there someone you he's calling you to serve or to speak the gospel to? Your neighbor, coworker, friend. Is there someone to invite to church to minister to? And then lastly, ask him. Ask him to open your eyes to his leadership, to his heart, to his leading. Is there anything standing in the way of your worship of him? If you're a believer in Christ, we come to the table and we're going to remember and you're invited to join with us. For those who are not believers, the challenge to you is to repent, to to turn from your sin and and to believe, to trust. That's all you gotta do to be part of the family. And for those who are believers, our job is to also repent. Our standing is, is firm, it doesn't change, you still need to confess your sins. And so you repent, and then we're to, to remember. Remember what Jesus has done for us. His body, broken for you, take and eat. His blood shed for you, take it and drink. Fellowship, may we be a church filled with believers who who obey God and who deal well with our sin. God bless you. Have a great week.